Today's episode of That Song from That Movie is coming up after these messages. Welcome to Talking Shiz. I am CJ. And I am Maddox. And our podcast is like a radio show. We have no certain topics. We talk about anything and everything. And our opinions don't matter. And we do have a pod page. What is our pod page where folks can find our platforms and what we're all about, Maddox? I'm glad you asked. As a matter of fact, that is podpage.com forward slash talking without a G uh, dash shiz. And that's where our, it's our one-stop shop. It has everything there. It has all of our donation links. It has all of the content that we have created, our recent related reviews, and it even gives you where you can find us on different applications such as Google, uh, iHeartRadio, you name it. We're in almost in every single uh, branch of applications out there. So please check it out. There's even, if you want to become an official shizzler, we even have merchandise. So definitely go there, check it out, and yeah, it's literally the best one-stop shop. Absolutely, and sharing is caring, so make sure you guys share, share, share. We're on Twitter, and that's talking underscore shiz, Instagram, talking underscore shiz. We have Facebook, we got our pod page, we have different platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, what Maddox said, we are everywhere. So definitely check us out, and we definitely appreciate you guys listening. Yes, thank you guys, and we'll see you on one of our episodes. scuba equipment at the ready because it's time to be seduced by the three most charismatic men in all of england so here's to you dear listener on another episode of that song from that movie this is something new casper slide part two featuring the, featuring the band, band. And this time, it's gonna get funky. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, The Journey Through the Very Best and Worst of Movie Songs. I am your pretty half-baked host, Dietrich, and we're joined by the man who Jesus loves more than you will know, Alex. (laughs) And more than I'm willing to express in this podcast. I thought I'd go back to giving you the nice ones. (laughs) Thanks, Dee. It's only because we're also joined by a socially awkward and very off-putting man called Ben. Ben. Yeah, I really empathise with this film. (laughs) I thought you might. (laughs) speaks directly to me. <laughs> Little did you know, I was once a graduate too. I mean, that will shock many people who are listening. <laughs> oh, great, cheers. <laughs> so what have we been watching this week? I watched It's a Wonderful Life. In January? In January, yes. In January. It's a, it's a, you can watch it in the summer. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that annoyance of nothing new is coming out. Keep seeing trailers for things and like, oh, that'll be good. And then... Nothing materialises. I did want to actually ask, yeah. ask you, Ben, about the um, trailer for the new Studio Ghibli film and your thoughts. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? <laughs> I haven't, I, no. I is, haven't is even it, heard about it. I, I, didn't even, I thought Studio Ghibli was closed. No, so they've, they've done a new trailer for a film, but it's CGI, and there's been a lot of people complaining on oh, it. Oh, yeah, right, it. okay. I've read, yeah, I've read about this. Uh, I haven't seen the trailer for it, though. I oh, you haven't seen the trailer? It. Yeah, have a look on It's on YouTube, I think. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't like that. <laughs> It looks odd, but I kind of like, I wasn't as against it as many people seem to. It, cause it's What's the wi- film called? I can't remember what it's called. I know it's another Diane Wynne-Jones book, like Howl's Moving Castle, but I can't remember what it's called. The, the CGI is in the same style as the normal animation, so it looks really odd. <laughs> hmm. 
Oh wait, it's not that earwig and the witch thing, is it? Yes, that's it. That's it, it is that. Okay, I have seen the trailer for that then. Uh, yeah, quite a while ago. Uh, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want things to ruin my things. Stop ruining my things, people. Damn you, technology. I didn't think it looked too bad. I thought it looked quite weird and unusual. I hate change. Yeah. I also hate quadrilogies. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go an episode that I mentioned Toy Story 4. Or referencing it, anyway. What about you, Alex? Uh, what did we watch? We watched a film this morning which was called The Greatest Store in the World. Oh, The Greatest Story in the What was it called? The Greatest Store in the World, I think it was called. <laughs> had, a, had a long-lasting impact on your life, clearly. <laughs> I was trying to think what it's going to because I'm getting confused with The Greatest Story ever told, which I think it is a play on that, because it is a Christmas film. Also watching it in January. <laughs> store or story? So it is store. Like Moppetop Shop. Like it's S-T-O-R-E. And it was okay. a film from like 1999, I think. But it, it's like a Christmas film about this family who are homeless who live in a in a mall or a whatever you want to call it shopping centre. It was very very late nineties early noise, but it was quite good. very Christmassy, very warm. Good for January, definitely. <laughs> we're, let, we're letting out many in, industry secrets here. <laughs> you mean the podcast isn't live? <laughs> yeah, thank God. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, I have watched the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie this week, and. I'm now at the uh, the tipping point where it starts to go towards crap. Starts. <laughs> yeah, the, the third one is okay, but it's already on that downward slope towards whatever uh, Salazar's revenge is. Fight the Kraken. What was the, was the second one? The Dead Man's Chest. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. So today's episode is Mrs. Robinson from the movie The Graduate. So to find out what was happening in the world when the movie came out, over to you, Alex. Yes, so boy, Christmas really went quickly, didn't it, guys? It almost feels (laughs) as though it hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, But don't worry, because I'm going to take you back there now. In fact, I'm not just going to take you back to 2020 Christmas, but the Christmas of 1967. Personal favourite of mine. (laughs) I remember it well. It's actually the year after the Christmas that we've already talked about, spoken about in the Grinch episode. And do you guys remember what the best-selling toy was of that year? I do. It was Twister. Can you have a guess at what the best-selling toy was of 1967? Also board game themed, but you wouldn't classify it as a board game. And unlike Twister, this did actually have a film adaptation in 2012. Battleships. Battleship. Battleships. <laughs> what a film. What a film. Have you actually seen it? I have, yeah. I mean, who was sitting around that writing table? <laughs> they were probably playing Battleships, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, they probably <laughs> were, yeah. <laughs> Wait, guys. I've got an idea. Also, in December 1967, full-time colour television programming began in the UK on BBC Two, which had inaugurated the service with a test broadcast from Wimbledon on July. But on in December, it showed its entire evening lineup in colour, starting at 6.30 in the evening with Billy Smart's Circus. <laughs> TV hasn't changed. <laughs> We're still cosying up by the fire to watch <laughs> Billy Smart Circus in 2021. Um, this, <laughs> nice catch. Nice catch. <laughs> so BBC Two was in colour, but BBC One was not in colour. Exactly, and this is, is what, what this is what we come to in a second. So, despite this, when the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour first aired on BBC One later in the month, it was in black and white, which upset the band because the psychedelic elements were lost. 
I mean, when you've when you've got something as controversial and as scary as colour being introduced to the wider public, the um, it might induce a peasant's revolt. So you've got to be careful with these things when you introduce magic into the realms. I like though that they started with Wimbledon. <laughs> Lots of green, one Easy. colour. That, green. No, but that's bad though, isn't it? Because the one colour you don't really want to start with is green because it really glares. Wasn't it? We've all didn't all colour TVs just burn into the screen? Like you, when you turned it off, you could still see the image. <laughs> if you watch that, you know that girl, that like um, standby thing. It was like that girl with the puppet. Oh yeah, with the clown. Yeah, I think if you left yeah, it yeah, on yeah. too long, it you it, you could like wake up as in like a nightmarish fever dream and just stare at your screen, and she's there, just even. In, even... I'm pretty sure you're just thinking of, of multiple episodes of the TV show Life on Mars because that's exactly what happens. Oh really? I have not seen that. <laughs> Unless that was based on this like this concept, but that does happen in Life on Mars. Yeah. Anyway, further news. So Otis Redding recorded. Sitting on the dock of the bay on the 7th of December, three days before his accidental death on the 10th of December at the age of 26, when his plane crashed into Lake Monona in Wisconsin. That's it, really. That's the news. And obviously also the film The Graduate came out. We're being very efficient today. <laughs> Trying to keep up a pace. On the bit ball. Of a bit of a cold. Because we're into a new era of that song from that movie in 2021. 2021 is all about efficiency. <laughs> Directed by Mike Nichols, written by Buck Henry and Calder Willingham, and based on Charles Webb's 1963 novel of the same name. The Graduate tells the story of Benjamin Braddock, played by Ben, I mean Dustin Hoffman, a recent college grad who has become disillusioned with his future after a lot of not doing very much, such as standing at the bottom of his parents' pool in full scuba gear. The story takes a turn when Ben is seduced by the older Mrs. Robinson and then subsequently starts a relationship with her daughter Elaine. Now, have we seen this film? And if so, did what did you think? So yes, I have seen this movie. <gasps> I watched it yesterday. Ah. Oh, good lad. <laughs> what was it on? Question mark. Uh, uh, the... Yeah, moving on. <laughs> uh, very legal places. Yes, <laughs> all yep. the legal streaming yep. services. Yes. <laughs> My opinion is split in half for this film. I thought the first, well, let's say first half, even though it's probably more like first two fifths, was this sort of fun, awkward movie about a guy in over his head trying to deal with like an, an older woman coming onto him. But I thought the second half, where it was dealing more with his relationship with Elaine, was this sort of creepy stalker movie <laughs> that, obviously, I know it came out before it, but it had massive American Psycho vibes to it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I am with it. What about you, Ben? Can't say I've ever compared it to American Psycho. It's been a long time since I've seen this film. I think I watched it when I was maybe at the coming to the end of university. So, 20, 21. And found elements to empathise with, and I would quickly add that none of that relates to a an older woman. <laughs> I still hold it in memory, in high regard. I think it's a, well, I mean, it's famous because it is one of the, I think, best coming-of-age films. I think still has a lot of relevance to today, in that delirium from leaving university or college of, like, what am I going to do with my life? and not really understanding what the future holds, and maybe just trying to distract myself with temporary entertainment. <laughs> I think for people who haven't seen it, who are thinking of watching it, I think you could still get a lot out of it, and it's, it hasn't dated. Obviously, there's elements of it, but I think it still would hold up if I watched it. Mm. It's interesting, both of your comments there, uh, from, from the two of you, because they kind of do touch on what a lot of people think of it. So, like, with D, with, with what you said about it being, like, a film of two halves, a lot of the reviews at the time felt similarly. Like the, the, the beginning of the film felt like it was going to be this really new, fresh take on sort of this coming-of-age story and that it had yep. something really special in the latter half laid down. So there was a lot of reviews of that at the time. 
And similarly, Ben, with what you were saying about it still holding weight now or, the, or that it hasn't aged much, it's interesting that because... So I think in, in 1997, it was seventh on the AFI Greatest American Movies list. What? Yeah, in 2007, it dropped to 17th, so it dropped 10 places. And there's this sort of more contemporary view of it where, again, they're going back to this thing that the opening half is really strong and then it loses its way in the second half. I can see that. I kind of get it. But that sort of, for me, is what makes the ending so strong, because yes. it kind of, which I think is what I'd like, I mean, the beginning and the ending are the two parts of the film that I think are really, really iconic, but we'll maybe go into those a bit later. You have that sort of, like, really joyful euphoria of triumphing over, like, the cruel rules of the world at the end when he breaks up the wedding, spoiler alert, although it's too late. But then that moment when he just, like, lingers just that little bit too long on the bus and you sort of get that famous what now moment, and it just really echoes the beginning. So you have this sort of journey to come to the same outcome that you started with. And I think it does really encapsulate kind of a lot how a lot of people felt when they leave college or university and they don't know what to do. <laughs> and so he sort of finds a purpose, but then loses it instantly again at the end. Actually, I think it's just a really powerful ending, but I do take your point, Dee, about that sort of second half where he's like, it is a bit creepy. And I think a lot of people were commenting on that in the reviews that I read as well, that it does sort of become a bit stalkerish the way it sort of just keeps showing up. And the fact that she is the daughter of the woman that he had been having an affair with. <laughs> yeah, just constantly going, get a blood test. <laughs> Come on, get a blood test. For me, get a blood test. <laughs> Which I had to Google why he was asking that. Go on. Apparently until the 1980s in America, you had to prove you didn't have syphilis to get a marriage license. Oh, God, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> does it make that clear in the film? Or, or is it just that he keeps asking that question? Well, I think it doesn't make it clear in the film in the sense that I think it was just common. Yeah, I, have no, I had no idea about that. <laughs> Do you think, though, like, I mean, you said it's gone down 10 places. Yeah. Still, still 17th in 2007. Still 17, yeah. Mental. Do you think that's just, I always want, and I I guess it's one of those films, and I think this in general with coming of age films, as I get older, does my interpretation resonance sort of fade? Because I'm kind of not at that stage of life where I can kind of empathise with the character. Yeah. He's a bit slimy, isn't he? Yeah, he's a bit of a brat as well. I mean, he he's a bit, and yeah, he's a bit of a prat. And I think maybe you kind of maybe think more about Mrs. Robinson's character. Yeah, because I think she's a, a more interesting character. I think I think actually too, a yeah. quote, one of Dee's favorite all time critics, Rod Reber, Um He said the same thing. When you watch it when you're younger, you you relate more to Benjamin, obviously as you should, because that's the point of the film, I suppose. But when you watch it when you're older, you sort of a bit more on her side. <laughs> so it's it is an odd dynamic, I suppose. I mean, what I would say about Benjamin as a character though is that like the parts where his eyes worse, like where he takes a lane to that strip club, for instance. Think about halfway through the film. It's because he's trying to fit into this world. This is the way he believes it's supposed to be, or is what he's been told it's supposed to be. So that kind of excuses a bit of his behaviour, maybe. It's not me, it's my environment. (laughs) No, but I mean, in terms of like him not being a bit of a dick, I think like the whole point is that he's trying to be a dick because that's what he thinks people, that's what he thinks the world is, maybe. I didn't read it that way. Did you not? No, I read it that he didn't care about Elaine until he couldn't have her. (laughs) That's interesting. When she ran off and started crying, that's when he actually wanted Elaine. That's how I read it. (laughs) Yeah, which I think is possibly a fair interpretation. Being seduced by Mrs. Robinson and things like that are those sort of cheap thrills that you're getting when you're still trying to figure out adulthood. Are these things you associate with adulthood when you're younger, like the cool things like, oh yeah, I get to drink or I get to do all these things, go to strip clubs but then the consequences of those things and that they're not as fun and enjoyable as you might have thought when you kind of, you know, wished about them when you were 16, 18. Mm. And like the consequences of being with Mrs. Robinson, strip clubs aren't that interesting. It's that side. But at the same side, 
once he jumps at the thought of adulthood, getting married, you know, running away, and then that settling in those last few seconds when they're kind of just like, oh shit, what now? Yeah. Is that, yeah, now we are, we've got to embrace adulthood, it doesn't matter, it's a, it's the same thing, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this this is a great idea, what a declaration of love, you know, let's get married, and it's like, mm, was that a stupid decision? <laughs> Probably. I think that sort of goes back to what I was saying, that... At that point, he's got her again, so now he now he doesn't want her. <laughs> it's like JD in Scrubs. Yeah, it is exactly like JD in Scrubs, actually. <laughs> Should we talk about the song? Anyway, actually, no, like, before yeah. we do that, I'd like to just touch on the casting, because it's quite interesting with the casting of this film, because so many people applied for the roles. Oh, just, it's just like, it's literally like a who's who of like really famous actresses, especially for Mrs. Uh, Robinson's role from this period, so... Sophia Loren, Judy Garland, Rita Hayworth, Susan Hayward, uh, Deborah Kerr, Gene Simmons, oh, right, yeah. and Baxter Shelley Winters, Angela Lansbury. <laughs> no, she wrote. I, I, that'd have been a different film. <laughs> yeah. But even like for the other roles, so like Elaine, like Faye Dunaway was considered, Shirley MacLaine, Raquel Welsh. Interestingly, like Dustin Hoffman, this was like his first role, and actually he only got paid just $4,000 after taxes for this role. Wow. And a lot of people, there was a lot of not particularly pleasant reviews at the time of his performance. But I think they just sort of said they went with him because he came and he was really awkward and that fit the role. Because <laughs> they, they, they sort of considered Robert Redford, but I think, and, and Warren Beatty actually. But Warren Beatty and uh, Faye Dunaway both turned down the roles oh, because yeah. they were both in Bonnie and Clyde for like the same year, I think. But oh. Robert Redford would not have been right in this role. It would have been no, it would have been no. too slick and cool. Yeah, he has never struck out. Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have been believable at all, would it? Let's just put it that way. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the song. So the song that we're going to discuss first, and that's the hint, <laughs> so what's to come, is Mrs. Robinson. So written and recorded by Pope Pop Pope. Pope funk, pop folk, do I can't say the word folk. Pope funk band. That is that is a pop genre folk. that I am willing to explore. Pop folk duo Simon and Carfunkel. Before we go into the details of how the song came about, do you have any initial opinions about the song? It's used in the film, maybe. I knew the song well before I've seen the movie. Because to me, that song is just associated with American Pie and the Finch and Stifler's mum scenes. <laughs> but it almost felt like the movie kept teasing like motifs of the song until it finally cracked on with it mm. and when it finally arrived and it was in the second half yeah. at that point i was sort of going <laughs> mm, god's sake <sighs> with it so uh yeah what you, been? <laughs> you cynical bugger it's hard for me to recall when it appeared in the film like i say it's over almost 10 years since i've seen it i mean do you want me to just give you a, a please yes yeah, please so the part d correct me if I'm wrong because i've not seen it for a year or so the part where it actually kicks in is when he's driving around trying to find yep. elaine and he essentially confronts Mrs. Robinson, and that is where he finds out that she's getting married to somebody else. And he's sort of, he's sort of just driving around, um, just looking for her in his in his uh, in his uh, Alfa Romeo Spider, and and that's it really. <laughs> that that that's it. It's like this is part of what I will touch on later. But yeah, that's where it appears in the film. Can I ask a question? If either of you two are more familiar with the work of Simon and Garfunkel, are they or were they rather counterculture? Because like I remember watching the film Almost Famous, and the mum's going through the kids' record collection and there's Simon and Garfunkel track and she's like saying music of the devil or whatnot. And when, but when I think back, you know, when I listen to them, they, you know, it couldn't be more soft often. It's very sort of pleasing rock. I know they, they had some sort of songs where the meaning might be around like drugs and things like that. So so early Simon and Garfunkel, you probably would consider it because of the time that it was. So you're talking mid-60s. Yes. It's kind of not like the let's all sit around the uh, the old wooden radio and listen with our ears cupped. <laughs> 
they sort of became quite big by doing tours of university campuses and things like that. So, mm. And they were quite underground at this point. I think they'd have a bit of success with the first two albums. But this is what kind of really exploded them into fame. And I think like what you're oh, sort wow. of thinking of, Ben, is maybe like the Bridge Over Troubled Water album, which is the last one, which was like, I think, one of the, mo- the highest selling albums of all time, just period. Yes. And it is a bit more pop, whereas this is the earlier albums are a bit more folksy. Definitely. And it's, mm. there, there are, there's a lot of covers of, of like classic folk songs, and there's one of which is in this film, which is obviously Scarborough Fair. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so it was more counterculture, which I think is why it fits more, and probably did fit more at the time. I suppose maybe in retrospect, it doesn't necessarily look like it. Yeah. Do you want some facts about the song? Oh, please. It's, it's creation. So director Mike Nichols spoke to Columbia Records about including Simon and Garfunkel's songs in the film after binging on their music over a two-week period. And they actually used a couple of the songs as placeholders. And Sound of Silence, for one, which is the song we will talk about later, I've mentioned it now. They used that as a placeholder in those two scenes. So contacted them, Paul Simon wasn't initially convinced by the project, stating that doing a movie was akin to selling out. Yeah, I mean, that, that's counterculture. Yeah. But I mean, it's embarrassing considering his performance in Annie Hall. But let's not go into that again. <laughs> I didn't even know he was in Annie Hall. <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing, embarrassing performance. But he did eventually agree to write a couple of songs after meeting Nichols, who impressed him with his wit. That was a quote. <laughs> impressed him with his wit. <laughs> so after several weeks, Simon pitched a couple of songs, two of which, The Punky's Dilemma and Overs, would eventually feature on the album Bookends, which was the album that features the official version of Mrs. Robinson that came out. But Nichols rejected both songs, he didn't like them. And they said they'd been working on a song, possibly originally entitled Mrs. Roosevelt, although there are a lot of contrasting versions of the story. It's kind of like a John Barry situation where like this is like <laughs> ten different versions of the story of how this song came about. But what is clear that they played the song in progress using D's and do's. Etc. And Nichols loved it, exclaiming something like, It's Mrs. Robinson now. And there's, there's several different versions of who actually was the one who said it's called Mrs. Robinson. That's the, that's the one that I found the most believable. That's really interesting. So do you guys want to hear some facts? <laughs> Sounds like you're, it's like some sort of back alley thing. <laughs> you, want any, you want any facts? You can't see, but I'm holding open a trench coat. <laughs> so, this was a Billboard Hot 100 number one single, but it wasn't until 1968 when they released the single version. Yeah, so this is another thing I should mention. They didn't actually release the soundtrack to this film until the year afterwards. But actually, what I didn't mention about the film, which is interesting based on what we discussed, although I know we're getting back to the film, but... It actually, adjusted for inflation, it is the 23rd highest grossing movie in North America of all time. That's incredible. Which you just wouldn't think, would you? No. No. I think it was uh, the number one of the year. I mean, presumably it must be with that number. Oh, it was certainly up there. But at the time, so the budget at the time was 3 million, it made 104.9 million. But I think it said with inflation that's sort of like 800 plus million. Wow. So it was very successful at the time, which maybe you wouldn't necessarily think watching it now. But that kind of explains as well why the song is so well known and why the soundtrack did so well. Because the versions on the soundtrack, as I've said, are not the version of this song, especially Mrs. Robinson, that you would recognise. In fact, there's two versions on the soundtrack, one of which is just instrumental and one of which is the very brief lyrical version that's in the film. But yeah, some more facts. So the fir- it, uh, it's technically the first, and you'll enjoy this, Steve, because it involves the Grammys, is the first rock <laughs> song to win the Grammy Award for Record of the Year. You could, you, Whether you want to call this a rock song or not, I don't know. Well, the, the Grammys always do this. You'll have songs, I don't know. Going back to this star, probably 
Casper Slide Part 2 is probably one night <laughs> best original rock song. It's, it's, it's difficult to really know if that means anything, but that's that's what it says. It says in the notes that I've written here. <laughs> so the Google complaint made it by me. Yeah, I think it also won uh, like best duo uh, song from a film or something. <laughs> God, I hate the Grammys. It also finished number six on AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs list in 2004. Great. Big fan of those lists. So it's obviously well associated with this film, which is what I wanted to talk about next, and I've touched on it a few times. So Dee, you only watched this film yesterday. Correct. Would you have picked this song as the song that people would remember from the film? No. And as re- as referenced uh, before we started recording, I had to ask you what song <laughs> we were actually doing today, because I thought it was The Sound of Silence. Exactly. And this is what I wanted to touch on, because... There's two, I would say, two really iconic moments in this film. There's the very beginning and there's the very end. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that happens in the middle. But those are the two bits that really stuck with me when I watched it the first time. And in both those instances, the song that's playing is The Sound of Silence. <laughs> and I think that there's this film that put that song into such prominence that it is today. And I think if you ask many people to name a Simon and Garfunkel, that's probably the one that they would sing. Yeah. And I think in terms of cinema and iconic movie scenes this song just stands out way above the other one. And yet, when you search like online, like the song for The Graduate or movie songs, lists of movie songs, and you look through articles and articles, the one that always gets listed, and quite highly, often, is Mrs. Robinson. And it's not even really in the film. The, the proper song that people know is not in the film or, or anything to do with the film because it came much later. And the version in the film isn't anything other than a very brief musical interlude that doesn't have much, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hold any weight within the film. Ben couldn't even remember the scene that it was in. Nope. Yep. And I can so, remember the one with uh, Sound of Silence. Exactly. You can you can probably you probably I, I haven't even said what happens in the opening scene, but I'm sure you can remember it. Yes. Because like they're both cinematically quite stunning. I think both those two scenes, and you can say what you want about the rest of the film, but I think that those two really hit the correct note of the message that the film is trying to put across. And really, the first scene, especially, I think, just like sets up the story so well that I just, I just don't understand why it's Mrs. Robinson that everyone always references. But maybe that's a rant over and done with. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I assume it's because of the lyric, and that's it. That's literally it. Yeah, it has to be, doesn't it? Because the the quote, Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to seduce me? I think a lot of people know that Mrs. Robinson, you know the song. I think it's basically just a tying of those things. Yeah, and and what's so funny about that is the song. It wasn't even called Mrs. Robinson to begin with. <laughs> that was literally yes. no relevance to the it film. And in fact, about. so this is this is interesting. You would think that the song being called Mrs. Robinson, the character Mrs. Robinson, that the song was written for the film and so would be eligible for a nomination for an original song at the Academy Awards, but it wasn't. What? Yeah, so it wasn't eligible. Because it wasn't written exclusively for the film. Which is just the biggest irony when we're talking about what we've just been talking about there. Even though, like, from the story I told you, it sounded like the song was written for the film. It wasn't because, if you remember, they came to him and said, oh, we've got this that we're messing around with. It's called Mrs. Roosevelt. Who won the Oscar that year, then? Have we been to 1967 before on the podcast? Okay, so in 67, it was Talk to the Animals by Leslie Bricus from Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) Talk to the animals. (laughs) Yeah. Mrs. Robinson's a better song than that. Yeah, but it wasn't. I mean, I'd I'd also like to add (laughs) The Bare Necessities was also on that year, which should have won. Yeah. I think that that just further proves the point about the song Mrs. Robinson and why it shouldn't be the song that people associate with this one. Going back to what I referenced on the podcast before, that opening sequence, I very much enjoyed it because I love opening credit sequences where it's just names, not much going on, (laughs) but you learn so much about the character in that sort of two and a half minutes when it's basically just him stood 
on that travelator conveyor belt thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's just so well put together that opening scene, and it surprises me that it was a placeholder that the song was placeholder, and they didn't write it around it, or they didn't have it particular specifically in mind to begin with. It's actually something about the film. Generally, I thought it was really well directed. There was loads of like interesting shots that you wouldn't expect for a sixties film. Yeah, well, like obviously the the leg shot, and there's like the one where it's going up the staircase, and the camera's sort of just moving with them up this, like the different levels. Yeah, and it's sort of like how would they have done that in the sixties without stupid rigs? It would have been like a guy on a on a rope probably. <laughs> well, you'd be glad to know, dude, that it did win Best Director at the Academy Awards and it wasn't nominated for Best Original Song. So they adds up. Adds up. Mike Nichols is a great director. Yeah, and I think I think that that's maybe why the film, one of the reasons why the film is held in such high regard because of the direction of it, and it, it's it's a very interesting film to look at. And there, like I say, there's interesting shot choices all the time. Yeah, and I, I imagine the use of a pop group, whatever you want to call them. I mean, sixty-seven. I feel that's still quite early for that sort of connection. I'm just kind of looking through the winners of the best original song at the Oscars in years before, and it's all the same names, you know, these composers mm. repeatedly. And yeah, I think it does really stand out. And like, I find it weird that this was Dustin Hoffman's one of his earlier films because he was he was actually a lot older than his character, wasn't he? He was thirty. Yeah, he, he, he was um, mad. <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, but I think well, I don't think it was just one of his earlier films. I think it was his first film. I think this is his first one. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Anne Bancroft wasn't actually that much older than him, was she? No, which is part of the reason why she was chosen over some of the actresses that are listed because he didn't want her to be too old. But obviously, in terms of the character, she's—I think she was thirty-five, so she was five years older than Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> that, that's she was supposed she was like fifty, so what, fifteen years older than what he should be, or fourteen or whatever. But yeah, actually, in terms of the the, the, the actors, it's not that much of an age difference. Dustin Hoffman must have had a pretty meteoric rise then, from like thirty. Well, in the early, they got Midnight Cowboy there, but like yeah. you know, yeah, he was what, seeing Kramer versus Kramer, which was a big mass film. Yeah, meet the Fockers. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's but been loads. three Best Picture winners. Rain Man was another one. All the Presidents Men. Yeah. Like, uh, what was it, Marathon Man? That's Marathon Man, yeah. yeah. And Tootsie. <laughs> and Tootsie, yeah. <laughs> in a different, it should be in a different league, really. Um, <laughs> a different kind of film. So, top five. Now, I always find the American graduation weird. It's something that's completely <laughs> alien to us Brits. There's so much sort of celebration and ceremonial stuff, not just in the award but, like, just things going on around it. Especially high school. I'm still amazed by, like, the high school football. They've got, like, thousands of people going to watch them. How many people watched you playing football? How many people watched you playing football, Alex, at high school? Probably, like, three. (laughs) Including your father. And they were the subs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think college football gets, like, higher attendances than, like, NFL and stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. That is ridiculous. And so there's all this sort of weird around graduation, but I scoured the internet for what are the top five graduation films. Now, this includes both college, as in American University graduation, and high school graduation films. So what films immediately jump to mind when you think of graduation? High School Musical 3. Now, that was only on one list. (laughs) 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 And I, I can't even shame the website because I've moved straight past it. I will also shout out in the same vein, the Lizzie McGuire movie was on a list. Maybe I was on the Disney ch- Disney Channel website. Oh, dear. Do I have to say American Pie? You know what? I never saw American Pie on one list. That's crazy. Yep. Mean Girls? Mean Girls was on... <laughs> and the Lizzie McGuire... The Lizzie McGuire movie, whatever the website was, it was the first. It was the first film. Maybe it was... Maybe it was um, 
HillaryDuff.com. Maybe it's HillaryDuff.com. <laughs> no, none of these films so far. It's something like Superbad, maybe? Superbad was the fifth most used film on these lists. I can't think the one that came out recently that I really liked. I've forgotten the name of it. <laughs> Booksmart. Booksmart. Was Booksmart? Booksmart was sixth. Sixth. No, six. Are they kind of like, uh, are they all pretty much like sort of teen movies? The Graduate is on the list. That's well, The Graduate is on the list, but he, he's like, there is no graduation in that. No, but I guess it's called The Graduate. Maybe people just assume that, not even having seen it. The most used film was a, I don't even see it as a graduation, but it involves Greece. quite a funny scene in which she, it involves a graduation video when she's going from university to a different type of school i was thinking is it legally blonde but it is legally blonde <laughs> well because i remember the the scene at the end is a bit like a graduation isn't it but that's when she's there is graduating law school she but... also does graduate like at the start because she's then choosing what to go to go to go to law school because she uses oh, that graduation true. video when she's in the swimming pool yeah which is all a kind of the reason why she gets into the school was greece not on there greece was on some lists but not on most so how many have we actually got so far well we've got three yeah so you've got legally blonde you've got the graduate you've got super bad two more the Amazing Spider-Man 2. You're not good at this, Dietrich. I'm just thinking, I'm literally just trying to think of graduation scenes. One was quite a well-loved film from about two years ago on a lot of uh, lists. Ladybird. Ladybird, yes, there you go. I don't remember a specific graduation scene, though, in Ladybird. Yeah, well, I think, well, she graduates at the end, doesn't she? It's like the last seat, last yeah. year. The other one, I'll give you a <laughs> give you a clue. I keep getting older, but they say the same oh, age. <laughs> other notable mentions include Perks of Being a Wallflower. The Social Network, which I wouldn't consider a graduation film. St. Elmo's Fire, yeah. Kicking and Screaming, which is a great film. And Into the Wild. But not the Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> there was such a huge blurb about it as well. <laughs> well you were on LizzieMcGuire.com. Yeah, true. I was on HillaryDove.com. So now it's time for the ultimate question of movie or song. Confusingly, it is actually going to be Mrs. Robinson versus The Graduate. <laughs> Alex, go ahead. Yeah, if, we, if we're discussing Mrs. Robinson, which we agreed we would be, then I would choose film, definitely. I don't think the song adds anything. I do like the song, but the version of the song I like is the version that everybody knows, which is not the version in the film. There is a fundamental difference between the two, and one of them is a complete full song, and one of them isn't. And I, ju- I just think, like, the scenes where it features, it adds nothing. Well, it doesn't add nothing. Like, I think it, it fits well in terms of, like, mapping his sort of running around the city and, you know, keeping that tempo up and... Stuff like that, but I just it doesn't have the same impact that Sound of Silence has. I think if it that was the question between Sound of Silence and The Graduate, it maybe would be a bit different. But then again, it's because of its association with the film that I like it so much. So I think I will say film. Yeah, it's interesting that because I think Sound of Silence has been used in quite a lot of other films as well. Which I, yeah, I think it is a much superior song. If it is this weird pseudo Mrs. Robinson, and yeah, I can't remember that. I ain't got a clue what that is. <laughs> And I remember the film and remember it fondly. And even if it was the original Mrs. Robinson, would I? Nah, I'll still take the film. It's one of the iconic coming-of-age films. Because I wasn't exactly uh, impressed by the whole film, and this song comes in the second half of the film, the bit I don't like, <laughs> I don't really know what to pick, to be honest. Just so it's a good job. It's a good job you two came to a decision. Unanimous decision. <laughs> Not really unanimous, but I it will still be. get a vote. <laughs> unanimous decision. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Okay, so that brings an end to another episode of that song from that movie. Let us know what you think of The Graduate and which song you think is actually the song from The Graduate. You can do that on Twitter. What is our Twitter handle, Ben? TSFTMPod. Yeah, get in touch, like and retweet everything. So you can help out the podcast by sharing this on Reddit. 
what subreddit should they pick this week, Alex? Um, Hilary Duff's subreddit. Gotta give some love to that Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> that I wonder if that's. I wonder. One sec. I'm just going to see if there's an actual. Duff oh, there will be. Hundred percent. There will be. Hilary Duff. There is a Hilary Duff subreddit. Get on it. It has 1.9k members. Two are online. One is me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So you can help out the podcast by buying our fantastic merchandise, t-shirts and face masks <laughs> and what other things you would need in life. Notebooks, they're on there as well. You can get a Christmas jumper, it's probably too late, but you can get it in time for next year. That's tpublic.com forward slash TSFTM. And the other way you can help is it's on Patreon and we have news on the Patreon front. We have a new Patreon subscriber, so everybody say hello to Jade Cameron. Hello Jade. Hello Jade. Thank you for subscribing. If you want to join, Jade is one of our patron subscribers. It starts from as little as a pound a month or $1.50, depending on where you are in the world. And that's at patreon.com forward slash TSFTM. So all that's left now is to do some goodbyes. So it's goodbye from myself, goodbye, and goodbye from Alex. One word. Plastics. Curse you, Alex Walker. Was that your quote? <laughs> Surely not. And goodbye from Ben. Bring me Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes to Wapner. So goodbye, everybody. <laughs> goodbye. Bye. It's the iconic line of the film. I know it is. It's in the list of 100 quotes as well. (laughs) Who is it? Plastics.